Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to uh, Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. We'll look at the second half of this chapter, verses 11 to 20 this morning. Dr. Jim Boyce, uh, who I loved and benefited greatly from, he considers the whole book of Nehemiah a book about leadership. I don't think that's the only theme of that book. We've certainly seen already some, some uh, information about prayer and about walking by faith. But still, there's no denying that godly leadership is before us in this book of Nehemiah through the example of this man. I think we begin to see that in our text this morning, that what, it, what it teaches us about leadership. So let me read it, verse 11 to 20. Nehemiah is speaking. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not, had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well, and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Hornite... A Tobiah the Ammonite official and Gresham the Arab heard about it. They mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. You may have heard the expression, either lead, follow, or get out of the way. Uh, That kind of summarizes what our text says this morning. It's about leading and following and getting in the way, I guess. Which means we have three points to consider, briefly. First is this. This teaches us that leadership begins alone with God. Leadership begins alone with God. As I noted, the subject of this text is leadership. But before you excuse yourself and say, well, I'm not a church leader, notice that the text never specifically mentions church leaders. Instead, we have truths here that apply to everyone who leads, husbands and fathers and mothers and teachers and bosses, as well as elders and pastors, all of whom God has put in positions of influence or authority over others. And when we boil it all down, the text makes the point that good leadership begins alone in God's presence. That was true in regard to Nehemiah's leadership. In fact, it's been true of him from the beginning of the story. 
Back in chapter 1, while Nehemiah was serving the king of Persia, he got word that a thousand miles away back in Jerusalem, the walls of the city were lay in, in, in ruins. It, 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 they were broken down, and the enemies of God's people came in and out and uh, 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 hassling the city. It was a disgrace. But Nehemiah's first <clears throat> response when he heard about that problem was not to fly off in a torrent of activity. He didn't grab the next flight to Jerusalem. He didn't start a letter-writing campaign to the king to do something about this. Instead, he, he began by spending time alone with the Lord. We read, read about that back in, in Nehemiah 1.4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. And for some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. Then later in chapter 1, as Nehemiah prayed, he reflected on who God is, how Israel got into the situation, what God had to say about it. And as the situation came into clear focus, he repented, he claimed God's promises, he offered himself to the Lord, and as he prayed, he began to dare to believe that God might actually do what he said he intended to do. And Nehemiah began to, so Nehemiah began to think about the details and the possibilities and the contingencies. In faith, he developed some vision for the completion of this task. He didn't say anything to anyone. He prayed and thought and planned and dreamed in God's presence for four months. And what was true of Nehemiah back in chapter 1 is true in chapter 2. God opened the door for Nehemiah to go to Jerusalem to begin to do what he had been praying about. So we might expect that after all those months of waiting... Nehemiah would hit the ground with his feet running in Jerusalem and start uh, recruiting people and hiring subcontractors and get the work done. But when he arrived, he didn't do that. We read here that he did nothing. For three days, nothing. Nothing visible anyway. And he said nothing. Verse 12 and verse 6 both make the point of his silence. I had told no one. I said nothing. The only people that knew was some people he, he took with him on a late night tour of the walls of Jerusalem. He went out the Western Valley Gate and passed the Jackal Well and the Dung Gate where the garbage was taken out to be burned in the Valley of Hinnon. And around the southern part of the city wall, past the Fountain Gate where people went to draw water and past the King's Pool until his horse couldn't go any further because of all the rubble that had fallen down from the, from the wall. And so then apparently he went on foot and and, uh, and went on around the city and re-entered by the valley gate. Nehemiah did this almost all alone and all under the cover of darkness. What was he doing? He was practicing what he knew to be true. Demonstrating it for us. That leadership begins alone. Alone. In the presence of God. Verse 12, he explains, I had not told anyone what my God was putting in my heart to do for Jerusalem. Nehemiah felt this compulsion of solitude to pray, to think, to inspect and assess the real situation, to formulate formulate plans, to anticipate obstacles. He did not let the great need nor his own enthusiasm rush him into the situation he spent Time alone with God. That's what good leaders do. Charles Swindle wrote, People have the false idea that a leader lives an exciting life in the limelight, basking in the experience of one ecstatic public applause after another. 
But God begins this account of Nehemiah by showing us that successful leaders know how to handle themselves in solitude. Leadership begins alone with God. And so this morning I say to you, fellow elders in this church, this church will not prosper beyond your and my private walk with God. If we're not alone with him, seeking holiness and wisdom and courage and faith and strength, our leadership will be hollow and fruitless. There are no shortcuts. This is where the battle is waged. If we would lead where God is going, we must take the time to find out what direction that is and to be walking it ourselves. But the church officers are not the only ones that lead here. You husbands and fathers, it's easy for you to talk about your family's responsibility to follow your leadership. But what about the quality of your leadership? If you are not living and struggling and seeking a wisdom alone in God's presence, your family will go astray following you. And you moms, there's no one whose life is more harried than yours especially these days when you're expected to do it all. But I warn you, you cannot manage your home and be a suitable helper for your husband and train your children and be useful to those around you unless you regularly spend time alone in God's presence seeking his wisdom and his patience and his love and his understanding and his strength. And some of your bosses, how well you know it's lonely at the top. You bear the weight of responsibility for people. You feel the pressure from all sides. So how will you handle that as a Christian boss, a Christian leader out in this world? I call you to first be alone with God and seek, seek his face. Bow before him and lay your burdens in his lap. Search out his ways. You see, no matter what level of leadership God has entrusted to us, the principle applies. Leadership begins alone with God. This morning I call you to a godly solitude. It's the headwater of effective leadership. Leadership worth following. That's the first truth. Then there's a second. God's plans demand our commitment. God's plans demand our commitment. We talked about leading. Let's talk about following. All of us are followers at some level. Although I must say that following is not something we're very good at these days. From childhood, we are taught that our ideas are the very best ideas and that everything we have to say is worth listening to. And so as adults, we have little interest and deep commitment to things that we didn't dream up and that we don't control. We have come to believe that a meaningful life comes from expressing ourself and asserting ourself and fulfilling ourself and seeking our own agenda and controlling everything about our lives. But this morning, I tell you, we need to learn to follow. Specifically, when God discloses his plan, we are automatically committed to follow. The very fact that God has spoken demands our commitment, demands that we abandon our plans and adopt his. And that's what's going on in this text. God had raised up Nehemiah for the task of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. This project began in the mind of God. And it had been months in the making before any of the people of Jerusalem knew anything about it. But God never intended that Nehemiah would do this job alone. Nehemiah was powerless to do this job alone. 
He could lead, but someone had to follow. Someone had to work. Someone had to buy into this plan. And so in verse 17 and 18, God calls followers, workmen committed to Nehemiah and to Nehemiah's goals. Not because Nehemiah was their old friend. He was not. They didn't know him. But because he was, not because he was such a charismatic personality, we don't know that he was. But because he was God's man with God's plan. So it's verse 17 and 18, Nehemiah presents it to them. You see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. Nehemiah does two things here. He first sets before them the need. The need is God's business is unfinished. That, that, uh, when it says he, when I say he pointed that out, it's a little too soft of a word. He spoke of being in trouble, of living in ruins, of being a disgrace. That's a pretty powerful uh, statement of need. This wasn't just some remodeling project that Nehemiah had dreamed up in his head. God had made his will for Jerusalem known for centuries and centuries through the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Haggai and Zechariah. And plus this project had been going on for a hundred years already. God intended his people to rebuild Zion and Nehemiah knew that the task wasn't done. And they knew the task wasn't done. They had just come to accept it. They, They didn't see the rubble around anymore. But Nehemiah sets before them how unacceptable that is and how it doesn't have to be that way. And may I suggest, brothers and sisters, there's still unfinished work of the Lord that needs to be done. By his grace, he raises up people that don't let us ignore that. They may make us uncomfortable, but that's what God's word often does. And when God reveals his plans, we're committed to follow them. The second thing Nehemiah does here is he tells them of his call. He tells them of God's hand upon him. We don't know exactly what he told them, but we can surmise it's the things we read about already in chapter 1, the first half of chapter 2. He told them what God had already done. Nehemiah Nehemiah was not some lunatic that was hearing voices or something. God had called him to this task. Nehemiah was not one of the leaders that they had there, their priests and nobles and officials. Nonetheless, he was God's chosen man for this task. And there was already evidence that God was doing this. He told about that, how God had opened doors, how God had turned the king's heart, how God had provided already. There's evidence that this is God's work. So this morning I'm not saying we just should follow anyone uncritically who comes and says, God told me. Not necessarily. We want to know for sure that this is God's doings. At the same time, When God has revealed his will and raised up leaders to do his will, vindicating them so that we know they're from God, the people of God are called to follow just as much as those leaders are called to lead. And that's exactly what the people of Jerusalem did. They said, let's start. Let's get started rebuilding. And they got to work. God's plans demand our commitment. It's a very difficult thing for us. In our day of individual autonomy, we don't want to follow. We all want to be mavericks. We all want to do our own thing in our own way. But to just look at the biggest picture here. This morning I declare to you that God has raised up his king. As Apostle Peter proclaimed on the day of Pentecost, Jesus of Nazareth is a man of Nazareth, is a man accredited by God through miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him. This man, 
according to the foreordained plan of God, was handed over to wicked men who hung him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. This man, the Son of God Almighty, has now ascended into heaven and has been exalted to the right hand of the Father who has made him the king over everything. And now God has declared his will to expand his kingdom to the ends of the earth by building Christ's church until the knowledge of him covers the whole earth. Until people from every tribe and nation and language and clan everywhere on this planet have bowed to his rule and confessed his lordship and received from him forgiveness and eternal life. That revelation of Jesus as Lord, that revelation of the good news never understood before in the history of the world, demands our commitment. It demands that we follow this king without reservation. Wherever he takes us, we have nothing, absolutely nothing more important to do than this. God's plans demand our commitment. But even beyond that most basic commitment of faith, now we are to follow this king But this king has ordained some to lead and others to follow in that process. Both are his calling. His work can't be done without leaders leading and followers following. This is true in this church, true in every part of Christ's work. When God reveals his plan and raises up leaders, he demands that we commit. One more truth here. God's work may prove unpopular. God's work may prove unpopular. These days we're into opinion polls. It's our new standard of truth, you know. If 93% of the people polls say something is true, how how could it possibly be wrong? Well, God doesn't care about polls. Throughout the Bible, he repeatedly prepares us for the reality that his work will not do well in the polls. That his work will often prove unpopular. No sooner had Nehemiah revealed his plan and no sooner had the people committed to it than it ran into problems in the polls. Worse than that, not just widespread disapproval, but high-level opposition. We read about it in verse 19. Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, and they mocked and ridiculed. What are you doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? These were profound, powerful, political leaders in that part of the Persian Empire. And their accusation was very heavy. Rebellion against the king. That's what you're doing. Now, they didn't just make that up. Those weren't empty words. This is what had shut down this work years ago. It had been considered rebellion against the king. So you see what they did? Nehemiah's calling was absolutely uh, 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 normal and legal. He had papers of authorization from the king, from the emperor. But they took that call to ministry and twisted it and made it into political sedition. And folks, it still is happening. The work of God gets so unpopular sometimes that it gets considered political and it gets to be 
opposed at the highest levels of our, of our government, of our societies. And not only this country, in lots of places. So what do we do? Do we cower and run? Do we become antagonistic and be obnoxious for Jesus? Do we wring our hands? What do we do? Now we just need to understand this is not unusual. God's work often proves unpopular. So look at Nehemiah's response in verse 20. He says, God's the active agent here. He's going to give us success. He went on to say, we will serve the Lord no matter what. He's not being arrogant. This is just resolve. God has called us to do it. We're going to do it. Furthermore, he said, you are not part of this. Now, they probably did claim that they were part of it. They claimed to worship God. The, the, the man Tobiah, his very name means Yahweh. It's good. But Nehemiah understood that their concern was not the plan of God at all. And he would not let them stop him. And he would not let them join him and compromise what work was being done. I tell you all that just so that you'll be prepared for opposition because God's work proves unpopular. If we're not busy doing it, we won't ever know that. But when we commit to what God has told us he's doing, we will find that some people don't like it. None of us likes to be unpopular. We want to be inclusive and accommodating and tolerant. And that's good because God is a God of compassion. And he receives those who come to him, the poor, the broken, the outcast, the hurting. Why is Lake Chapel? We pride ourselves on welcoming all kinds of folks. But our fellowship is here still subject to submission to God's plan. Even as we love people unconditionally, we must stand firm for the truth. We must be prepared, no matter how loving we want to be, we must be prepared for the fact that God's truth and God's work sometimes will prove unpopular, like it or not. Today, God isn't busy building the city of Jerusalem over in the Middle East. That's not his project. God is building a new Jerusalem, which is Christ's church, filled with disciples from every tribe and nation and people on earth. For this Jesus died on the cross, that the good news of forgiveness of sins might be proclaimed to sinners everywhere. For this he rose from the dead, that, that the people might serve their living Lord in newness of life. For this he's given us his Holy Spirit, that we might be changed and empowered with him for this great work. So now I challenge you. Lead, follow, or get out of the way. If God calls you to lead, whether you like it or not, whether you have other plans or not, it doesn't matter. If he calls you to lead, you must lead. And that means time alone with God to start with. There are no shortcuts. And when God raises up leaders, we have an obligation to follow. Whether it was our idea or not, God's work, God's plans demand our commitment. And if we're not called to lead, and if we refuse to follow, then get out of the way. God's work will prevail, no matter what anyone thinks, no matter what opposition comes against it. It will prevail, even when it seems hopelessly unpopular. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the confidence that your work will go on. That you have not unfolded the plan of the gospel, the 
uh, hatched in ages past, in eternity past, in your, in your own mind, in the counsel of the Godhead, that you have not un- unveiled this and worked this out in the coming of Jesus to have it all fail. We know, Lord, that uh, your plan will succeed. We know that what you're building will be built. And we thank you when you raise up leaders who help us to remember that it's not all done yet and to to shake us out of our complacency and to help us, Lord, to get serious about serving you. And may we understand, Lord, that uh, just knowing what you're doing and and, and hearing uh, the the, the call from leaders that you've ordained and raised up among us commits us, Lord, to follow. And, 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 And may we be good followers. May we not be surprised when there's trouble. May we not lose heart, Lord, when everyone doesn't agree. For we know that uh, people didn't agree with Jesus. They hung him on a cross. And you told us, Lord, that what they did with you, they'll do with us. Give us faith. Give us perseverance, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.